That's enough frolicking and tomfoolery. Let's get serious and get into the Word of God. I want to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. And if you are new to our church, we are so thrilled to have you here. And uh, on behalf of this whole church, you are welcome, and we are thrilled that we are a community where people who are on a spiritual search feel safe enough to come here and learn about God with us. All right? So we're glad you're here. Verse 1, chapter 8, during those days, another large crowd gathered. So since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, answered, but where in this remote place can we get enough bread to feed them? (laughs) Can you believe it? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. And he told the crowd to sit down on the ground. And when he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks... He broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. You feeling a little deja vu? Have we been here before? They had a few small fish as well, and he gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. And afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present, and after he had sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. Now, this is where it gets a little saucy. The Pharisees, <laughs> they came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. And he sighed oh, deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given it. Then he left them, went back into the boat and crossed the other side. Now, The disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. And they discussed with one another and said, it is because we have no bread. Ay, ay, ay. And aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? Don't you remember? <laughs> Check this out right here, verse 19. When I broke the five loaves before the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve. <laughs> and when I broke the seven loaves it took for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Seven. God, I love Mark's humor. And he said to them, do you still not understand? Yeah, here's God's word for us today. Thanks be to God. Grab a seat. Well, we just had a feast at the table. Now we're having a feast spiritually with God's word. Uh, This passage, we didn't plan this. It just worked out this way that we had Thanksgiving and then boom, we're in this passage about food. Hey, God has something to say to us. And, uh, You've got to just love this moment and the, the struggle that the disciples have to understand with what's going on. And this passage is the second time that Jesus has done this. Sometimes we need a couple tries to get it right. Are you with me? Scholars even think 
that this moment was actually a mistake. It's not a separate moment. It was the same miracle as the feeding of the 5,000. Do you remember that one? Okay, Jesus fed 5,000 people. And scholars think it's the same miracle, just with a few details mixed up, because why would Mark have it twice? And I love the scholars. They just can't understand, as brilliant as they are, why some of us would need to hear something twice. Are you with me? Ever been there with God where you just don't get it? You ever needed to get a lesson more than once? Well, that's where we are. So the two miracles, the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the four, have nine points of similarity. They are so much alike, but there are some crucial points of difference. And I want to highlight one really big difference. Now, the first miracle was for people who are Jewish. Now, watch this one. This one's different because of where it takes place. It says in verse 1, during those days, another large crowd gathered. Well, let's talk about the crowd and where they come from. Now, the crowd, if you go back to Mark chapter 7, verse 31, you got your books, go there. If not, just check it out. Look, this whole scene says, during those days. During what days? Well, you got to go back to 731, because during those days is referencing this journey that Jesus is on, in verse 31, it says that he left Tyre and Sidon where he was with that Greek woman that we talked about last week. Remember our first Gentile? Do you remember that? First Gentile. And now where Jesus is telling her it's not right to give the children's bread to the dogs, Jesus now is going to the wrong side of the tracks, to the other Sea of Galilee, the west side, to this region called, the, verse 31, the Decapolis. He went down to the Sea of Galilee into the region of the Decapolis. And if you're not brushed up on your ancient Israeli geography and history, let me spot out for you, the, the Gal, this area, the Decapolis, is like a region of 10 cities that were Gentile. Roman cities, people, Greek, all over the world, it's really a cosmopolitan area, people that were not Jews with, with some Jewish people sprinkled around the area. So Jesus spends this entire time when he heals the deaf and mute guy, and then now this miracle is not among Jews, but among Gentiles. And so this whole scene is Jesus repeating the same miracle to make a point. What would that point be? He does this amazing miracle for the 5,000, showing them, I'm the new Moses. I'm coming in the desolate place. I'm bringing food from God knows where, and I'm showing up, providing for you when you feel like you can't get food anywhere else. And he does it for the Jews, and then we get to hear, and this is not the same story just retold because Mark didn't know what he was doing. This is a similar miracle to make the same point, but slightly different, that with Jesus, there's always enough. And this moment highlights even for the outsider. Now, have you ever felt like an outsider with God? Have you ever felt like you just are on the outside of what God is doing? I remember when I was not a Christian and my friends were inviting me to church and I would show up to church, how uncomfortable I felt. I felt like everybody got something that I didn't. Everyone was going to realize that I didn't belong among them. You know what I'm talking about? And they start busting out with that Christian karaoke thing, and you're like, what are they doing right now? And they're singing, and you're like, uh, trying to follow along. Look, this whole miracle takes place in a region of people who are not Jews to make the point that Jesus and his provision, his miraculous provision is not just his good news. The kingdom of God is not just for the Jews, but for the world. He is Savior, not of God, only of Jews, but of all the world, 
and in particular the outsider, because Jesus came to seek and save the outsider. And maybe you're here this morning and you feel like an outsider. Maybe you got a friend or a family member that said, hey, it's holiday season. Why not get crazy, drunk on all that, you know, cranberry sauce and come to church with me? And in your cranberry stupor, you said yes. And here you are. Now, if you got invited by somebody and they brought you here, they owe you whatever you want at that cafe. All right? So you better go get it. If you're really saucy, you'll say, put this on Ryan's tab. I dared you. Feeding the 4,000 is this important moment where Jesus is trying to show the disciples and us that God's good news is for the outsider as well. And, he's tr- and through this whole moment, he's going to show us three important lessons to teach us about finding our satisfaction in Jesus as the bread of life. Because it doesn't matter if you're Jewish or if you're Gentile or if you're Encinitas or Carlsbad, you need food. And every one of us has hunger and needs to be filled. And Jesus uses that common ground, that thing that we can all relate to, the hunger to be satisfied and fulfilled at the deepest levels of our life to draw us into the very meaning of his good news and what he promises to those who come to him with their hunger. So let's learn these three lessons together, shall we? Let's get into it. Let's start with the first lesson about finding satisfaction in Jesus. Verse 1, during those days, let's go back over the passage. During those days, another large crowd, crowd gathered, and since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days. That word three, that number has symbolic significance in the Gospels, right? We know that number? Uh, Think about it. Dwell on that. Three days and have had nothing to eat. So if I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. Now, what I love about this passage is it gives us our first lesson, which is this, that if we want to find our satisfaction in God, if we want to experience a deep, soul-satisfying feeling of God's goodness in our life, then we have to bring our hunger to God. You've got to bring your hunger to God. And that's what I love about this passage. You've got this crowd of 4,000 people who have chosen to bring their hunger to Jesus. And what does Jesus do in classic Jesus fashion? We've been talking about this. He waits. He allows, we talked about this waiting, haven't we? How Jesus doesn't always show up right away. He kind of leaves us hanging out there. And right when we think, man, God has forgotten about me, or there's, maybe there's really nothing to this whole prayer thing, this whole faith thing. I don't see God showing up. After three days, finally, God, when their hunger is sufficient, he says, what are we going to do? And he allows their hunger to get to a certain point. And it's not just the physical hunger, it's the spiritual hunger that God wants to grow in our life. Because the temptation in our life is to not bring our hunger to God, but to go to other places to fill our hunger. Think about this for a minute. More than any other empire in the history of the world, you, as an American citizen, and if you're not, you're just visiting our country, and you're here in this country, then you are a partaker of the blessings of this country. Consider this. You have at your fingertips more resources, no matter how little you think you have, 
No matter how hard-pressed you might feel, think about it. You have at your fingertips more resources than any people group in the history of the world. And you have more options to go to with your hunger than going to God. And what this simple message is this. In life as human beings, we have a hunger, and we mistake that hunger to be at, at its deepest an emotional one or a physical one. If I just get more stuff, then I will feel better about myself. If I just get more further along in my career, if I can just get those grades and get that degree, then my life's going to be satisfied. And look, those things are good things, but the truth is every one of us brings this deep, what the Bible refers to as like a soul hunger. We bring it to things to satisfy us that could never do it. It's like trying to satisfy your Thanksgiving appetite with a dum-dum. Come on, now you know me. I love bringing my lollipops around. Maybe you got one right now and you're about to pull it out to give yourself a boost. But seriously, we bring our appetite to things that Jesus is saying, they're not bad, they just cannot satisfy your hunger. As Augustine said, our souls are restless until they find their rest in Him. Listen to Jim Carrey. Because Jim Carrey, profound theologian that he is, cuts right through all of the Greek and exegetical work that every pastor has to go through, and he gets right to the point. I love his style. Jim Carrey says this, I think everyone should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of. Boom, sermon done. Let's go home. Or I can get the... No, it's joking. He says, I think everyone should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see it's not the answer. Now, the problem with that is, doesn't that sound nice? Okay, all right, yeah, so... Uh, great, Jim. I do want to get rich and famous, and I'll find out for myself. But the reality is many of us will die trying. And the pursuit of those things, this is what the biblical wisdom is. Now, this is ancient wisdom. It is not going to make sense to your microwave-oriented mind. So brace yourself. Brace yourself. But making your life revolve around these superficial hungers leaves you on a never-satisfied journey in your life. It's going to leave you going after things that are going to bring pleasure, but pleasure is not the same as happiness or joy. There's a difference. Maybe some of us haven't figured that out yet, but do you know there's a difference between pleasure and happiness? I'm not saying that happiness doesn't bring pleasure, but not all pleasure brings true, deep joy and happiness in the Lord. A happiness that fills you. Blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for God's goodness, who say, I am no more dum-dums, bring the turkey. You know what I mean? All right. But truth is, we get stuck. Chase that. What is that for you? Where are you taking your hunger? This is a message just as relevant to those of us who are not Christian right now in this room as it is to those of us who've been following Jesus our whole life. Because as we'll see with the disciples later, we all have moments where we get a little off track and we just, we get distracted and we try to fill the hunger of our soul with things that can't do it. Maybe it's popularity. And so come on now, popularity. I got kids in high school. In high school, the currency of high school, more than grades, is popularity. 
It's that everybody knows you and thinks you're awesome and thinks you're beautiful and a stud, and it's all about people liking you. Come on now. It's about that social acceptance and living our lives consumed what people think of us. Maybe it's we, go to, we take our hunger to our careers. Where, where do you take your hunger? Where maybe this morning is Jesus saying, bring that hunger, bring it to me. Jesus said in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never grow hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. What's Jesus talking about? I'm the bread of life. Well, one of the most important verses in this passage that talks about bread, it's referenced, the Greek word for bread is the same word for loaf, nine times in this passage. This whole passage is like a big sandwich. You have bread at the top of it, but Jesus multiplying the bread. Then at the bottom, the disciples are freaking out because they don't have enough bread. So you got it? Bread, bread, and right in the middle, you got a Pharisee sandwich. And Mark structures it this way on purpose because right here in his interaction with the Pharisees, he's got a lesson for us. But this idea of bread is talking about what satisfies us and what Jesus is also symbolizing in verse 6 is what is the answer, his answer is to us. Look at verse 6. It says, When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. This is sort of like a formula. It's exactly what Mark writes when he feeds the 5,000. And get this, it's almost identical to what Jesus says in his last dinner with his disciples when he breaks the bread and he says, this is my body broken for you. What is Jesus representing with the bread? The offering of his life for your life. We're talking about the cross of Jesus Christ. Where on the cross, Jesus' life, his body was broken, crucified, for the outpouring of God's life into you to satisfy your soul and your deep longing to be right with God. When his body was broken, his brokenness makes a way for all the brokenness in our lives to be healed. The brokenness in our relationship with God, the, meaning the struggle that we have to trust him, to believe in him, and to bring our hunger to him. The brokenness in our relationship with each other. Now, some of us can't relate to the brokenness between us and God, but we can relate to its symptoms, the brokenness in our relationship with our family, our friends, or with one another. Or, maybe not that one, maybe for you, it's the brokenness in yourself, that pervasive anxiety that eats away at you on the inside that nobody else knows about. You put a smile, you look good, but on the inside, there's a hunger that is consuming you from the inside out. On the cross, Jesus was broken to make a way for your brokenness to be healed so that his life could be multiplied for you. So number one, we must bring our hunger to Jesus. Number two, what's the second lesson in finding our satisfaction in Jesus? Okay, number two, with the Pharisees. The Pharisees are going to help us out. Let's read this. Verse 11, the Pharisees came and began to question Jesus to test him. And they asked him for a sign from heaven. And he sighed deeply and said, 
Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given it. And he leaves. Boom, done. Now, the other Gospels have a little bit more there, but Mark in his classic style is Spartan and to the point, and he just moves on. So what does Jesus mean here? No sign will be given it. Have you ever wondered what Jesus means by this? Is Jesus saying, don't come to me for miracles? And if you come to God for a miracle, then you're just, you have no faith? Is that what Jesus is talking about? What do you think he means? Now, let's dig into this. It can't mean when Jesus says, oh, this generation asks for a sign, that he's talking about miracles, number one, because all of the Greek words that Mark uses for miracle, dunamis, are not here. This is a different word, a sign. This is a different Greek word. They're talking about something different. Number two, if Jesus didn't want to do miracles, he wouldn't have done them. Number two, thirdly, if Jesus didn't want us to come to him for miracles, we wouldn't come to him in faith for his resurrection and the promise of forgiveness and eternal life. All that is more miraculous than any healing he can do on your body. So he's not talking about don't bring me, don't come to me for miracles. He's not saying don't do that. That would be a misunderstanding. So the, what is he saying? Now this is super important. Because as we approach God to know him, to be satisfied with him, the Pharisees bring up a major barrier for us. This word test says, look at the, look at the passage. It says, it says that right there, they came to test him. Now, this is not the testing that comes with someone who is open and curious and wants to learn. The Greek word for this testing word, it, the other place it's found in Mark, you want to know where it is? Where we can understand what it means? I'm going to read it to you. Okay, where am I going to go right now? What does this word mean? And this is how scholars figure out these old words. They go and find that Greek word and they go, how else was it used in, in different literature and in the Bible? And they get its meaning from that way. Now, let's get its meaning. What are they doing here? Are they really there to learn from Jesus? Hmm. If we go to Mark chapter 1, and we go to, what is it, to, uh, let's go to verse 13. It says, and he, being Jesus, was in the wilderness 40 days, and he was being what? Tested and or tempted by Satan. So that's the other use of that word. So what are the Pharisees doing? They are coming not to come to know the truth about Jesus. They're not coming to him with their hunger because in the same way that hungers for food, spiritual hunger is for truth. And they're not coming for truth. And that can be a barrier for us in coming to God. We've already loaded the dice and decided what we want to hear and what we're willing to hear. And they're not coming to him to learn. They're coming to cause him to stumble and fall. That's what they're doing. They want to trip him up and find a way to prove that he's really not who he claims to be and to justify their unbelief. They want to justify their comfort zone of not having to believe. You see, if you don't come with an open heart to learn, you're going to learn nothing. You can't come to God with a full cup. You've got to let him empty it a little to give you what he's got for us. Well, that leads us to the second point. Here it is. Proof without faith is impossible. Now, this is what this point's getting at, that when we come to God, sometimes we can get stuck wanting proof at, to circumvent the need for faith. We come to God wanting God to prove to us something so we don't have to believe. I got to tell you right now, you will never get proof 
that frees you from having to believe at some point. At some point, you will have to take a leap and trust God, period. Let me say it again. There is no proof that in the end won't also acquire faith. Proof without faith is impossible. And that's why Jesus says, I can give you no sign. Not because he's trying to be mean or cheeky with them or he's irritated with them. He's trying to say, that is not possible. Because he's saying, God is not a philosophical, mathematical formula to solve, to prove. He is a person to relate to. And how do you have a relationship with anybody? It is by learning to trust them and trust them enough to get to know them so you learn by experience who they are, what they're about. And that, is, my friends, is how you fall in love. But if you're too afraid of getting hurt or duped or made to look like a religious foolish fanatic, then you never get close enough to God to fall in love with him and to know his love for you because you're too afraid of being made to look like the fool. Now, what Jesus is not saying here is that to come to faith, you've got to turn off the brain. I want to read to you a quote by one of my favorite writers right now. His name is uh, Francis Collins. He is the director of the Human Genome Project. This guy was an atheist, became a Christian, and was so moved by his conversion that he wrote a whole book about his journey from atheism to Christianity. And I want you to read, listen to this quote because he's going to talk about this tension that we struggle with between needing enough proof to finally believe, and we feel like sometimes we've got to make a choice between the life of the mind and the life of faith, and that the two are mutually exclusive of one another. Listen to what he says. He writes, will we turn our backs on science because it is perceived as a threat to God? Well, some people can do that. Come on now, Galileo, that guy was right. He was right. You know, people were misreading the Bible and damn, they were really just managing their control of religion. We'll talk about that in a minute. But people get threatened by science, abandoning all the promise of advancing our understanding of nature and applying that to the alleviation of suffering and the betterment of humankind. Now, isn't there a real temptation to sometimes do that? And is there, there is a history of the church getting into a battle with science, because sometimes science doesn't have it right. And guess what? Sometimes the church doesn't have it right. Uh-oh, did I just say that? I did. Because for a while, people that were in the church thought the world was flat. And newsflash, it's not. That may be the most radical thing I say to you today. <laughs> the earth is not at the center of the solar system, actually, sorry. Now, watch what he goes on to say. Alternatively, will we turn our backs on faith? And some of us, see, we think this way. We exchange one extreme for another. Well, I don't want to check my mind at the door. So I'm going to write off faith completely until you can give me a proof that proves definitively that God is real without me having to use any faith. No such thing. Alternatively, will we turn our backs on faith, concluding that science has rendered the spiritual life no longer necessary? And that traditional religious symbols can now be replaced by engravings of the double helix on our altars? Come on now. So listen, Jesus is saying no. He's not saying, hey, look, just because you still need faith doesn't mean you're throwing your mind at the door. As we're going to see with the disciples, Jesus is going to use logic and clear 
reasoning to help them see something that can only be fully understood by faith. And faith requires our minds and our hearts together. One theologian calls it a double primacy, but let's not go there. I'm going to take us off track. 1 Corinthians 122, capturing this tension about needing proof, Paul writes, Jews demand signs, which is what we see here, and Greeks look for wisdom. In other words, it's got to make perfect sense to me, and if it doesn't make perfect sense to me, then it's got to be wrong, and it can't be right. But we preach Christ crucified. Now, that takes us to uh, the yeast. Now, in talking about the Pharisees, this moment's important with the Pharisees. We've got our Pharisees sandwich because Jesus needs a lesson for the disciples to learn. Look at verse 14. He says, the disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Now, what does Jesus mean by yeast? Now, that could get a weird conversation, so let me just quickly answer that question. He's talking about the false way that both on the religious side and on the political side, we try to understand God through our human minds without faith. And see, religion can get it wrong sometimes. Sometimes religion can be more about control and self-preservation because of our reaction to moments and seasons and generations of insecurity or doubt. We feel threatened. We double down and we are not practicing faith anymore. We get lured into superstition. We get lured into fight or flight. And we're not operating out of faith. We're operating out of self-preservation. Because the Pharisees are afraid of the loss of control and leadership in their community. Because Jesus, this young upstart, is getting so much traction that they're like, things are going to get out of control and the Romans are going to come and put a smackdown on us. And they're jealous about the influence he's having. They're losing control and they're freaking out. Have you ever felt that way about your faith in this country? Come on now, have you ever felt threatened in this country about the loss of your values represented in this country? Come on, have you not ever felt that way? Now listen, it's not that feeling that way is a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. It registers, you're alive. You're like, I'm aware of what's going on and my values are not reflected in culture. Good, you're awake. But it's how we re respond to that perceived threat that can make all the difference. And watch how the disciples respond to the perceived threat of not having enough. It, it twists their perspective and it causes them to lose a perspective of faith, which is why Jesus is warning them about the yeast. Because in the end, the greatest enemy of faith is fear. And the reason why we have a hard time coming to God and finding our satisfaction in him is one, we're afraid that if we come to him, he doesn't love us enough to want to meet that need. And we already learned that his compassion is for the outsider, for you, no matter how outside of God you feel, he loves you. And he has what you need. Come to him and let him fill you with what you didn't even know you needed. But then secondly, we get afraid and we start doubling down on control to manipulate things to maintain control and that takes us out of the flow of faith. Watch, look at this. Verse 14, no, 17. Aware of their discussion, okay, so he did the whole yeast thing and they're like, oh my gosh, we have no bread. What are we gonna do? And <laughs> Jesus is like, are you, 
Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do, do you feel it? Are you feeling the emotion here? Jesus is like, come on. Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Listen to what James Edwards, a great one of my, my favorite commentator on this Bible, thinks my friend Joseph says, the disciples are anxious about lack of bread, but Jesus is anxious about their lack of faith. Now, here's what I'm saying. He's like, watch out, guys, because when you don't feel like you have enough, you're going to double down. You're going to get so focused on the bread, what makes you feel secure, what makes you feel protected, what makes you feel like you've got everything in control, and that feeling of not having what you need is going to cause you to double back into self-preservation, and you're going to slip out of that posture of faith, and you're going to miss what God is doing right around you. And we can do that with culture. We get so reactive to the ways we feel threatened by culture because of who's leading in office, because of what, you know, amendment got passed. Those things matter. I'm not saying they don't matter. Just like food matters to the body. But when we get fixated on those things, when we allow them to stir up our fear and our self-preservation, it opens us to being tempted by the evil one to get us out of a faith posture. And we're no longer seeing him as enough. Pretty soon other things plus Jesus are enough. Here's my point. Number three. We are not always going to understand. Okay, here we go. Number one, we must bring our hunger to Jesus. Number two, proof without faith is impossible. So where does that leave us? We're not always going to understand. We're not always going to understand. I just love that this passage has the disciples completely floundering. Can you imagine if I just, I don't know, like, if you want to communicate authority to people about your message, you don't go highlight how you failed and didn't get it right. Right? Can you imagine you're going into surgery and you're meeting with a surgeon and he's like, yeah, you know, I actually haven't done this one in a long time. <laughs> Gosh, you know, I realized it's been actually five years that I had to go back to the books and do a little internet research. I went to Wikipedia and had to look up how to do, you know, a, you know uh, let's call it, you know, a heart transplant. You know, I forgot. You're just like, are you kidding me right now? Now let's think about it. That lack, that, per, that lack of competence would freak you out and go, yeah, I'm not, we're not doing that surgery today. Are you with me? Please tell me you're with me because that would be a good choice. But, but here are the disciples, and they're like highlighting how they didn't understand, they didn't see, they didn't get it. Jesus is rebuking them, and, they, and Peter includes that in here because the gospel is not some prefab religious propaganda to show off how much they've got it right. Because in the end, that's what propaganda is. We got it right. You got it wrong. Look at how awesome we are. But this is the gospel, not of the disciples or human ingenuity. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And before him, we are all blind beggars finding our way home to our Father who loves us. And when you're circulating this document around their world, this is not building credibility in this movement when the, when the people who are propagating the message don't even look like they know what's going on. Because our faith is not in each other. Our faith is in Jesus Christ. And scholars look at this. Even non-Christian scholars look at this as a curiosity 
And as they will admit, eh, yeah, some kind of evidence that this is actually a reliable document, not propaganda, because why would they make themselves look so dumb? <laughs> but it makes a point. And I want to invite the band out here in a minute. Band, come on up. It makes the point. When we come to God, we think we've got to understand everything first, and then we'll believe. Look, you guys, these guys have been walking with Jesus. Now pay attention to how crazy this is. They've been walking with Jesus. They've watched him heal people. They've watched him calm storms. They've watched him walk on water. Isn't it amazing that here they still don't believe? Doesn't it just say something revealing about something about yourself that you really know is true? Doesn't it just speak to how hard it is for us to believe sometimes? Isn't it just wonderfully and painfully honest? But how hard it is sometimes to trust in God and that there are going to be times when you just don't understand what he is doing. You don't need to understand everything to trust him. Because you may not know what he's going to do, how he's going to do it, but that is not evidence that he is not good. The suffering and the heartache in the world is used as evidence against God's goodness but isn't it just like human arrogance to make our mistakes about God's frailty and fault? You guys, we do it as children. When we blow it as kids, don't we want to blame our brother and our sister? We've been doing that since we were little. It takes humility and it takes faith to say, I don't understand. But God, I trust you. I was going through the worst season of my life. And I share about this. And let me just share this moment with you. When I was going through a period of depression, I didn't feel the presence of God. My family was in ruins. My future was uncertain. I felt lost. I had just graduated college. I didn't know what was going to go with my future. My family was falling apart. And on top of it all, I was in an emotional, psychological, dark night of the soul. And I literally got to this moment where I was like, God, if you are so real, then why can't I see you and feel you? And if this is what it's like to follow you, if there's no benefit to following you, then what's the point? Because I was experiencing none of the benefits. None in that moment. And I wrestled with God. We talked about wrestling last week, and I wrestled with God. And then I got to this moment where I said, God, it doesn't matter if I experience any of the benefits. It doesn't matter if I feel good or not. That doesn't change whether or not you are real. And I had this breakthrough. My God, you are real no matter what. Whether I feel you or not, whether I'm experiencing all the benefits that I expect in my life or not, you're real. I didn't understand what God was doing. But at that moment, I said, I'm ready to trust you, even if I can't make sense of what's happening. That's what it looks like to bring your hunger to God. Because you know what? You could take that hunger and you could take it and get drunk and use alcohol the rest of your life to fill your soul. You could use pot. You could. You could just right now, it's free. It's legal. Not free, but you know, it's legal. 
You can use your career. You can use a lot of things. You can use your sport. My son just tore his ACL. Man, that kid, nothing, not, nothing more than wanted to play varsity soccer this year. Tore his ACL. So proud of him. Because even though he's sad about that, there's something in his life that is more satisfying to him than any sport can give him. There's something bigger in his life that he lives for, that fills him, that satisfies him. Where is God inviting you this morning to bring your hunger to him? John 6, 35, Jesus said this, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. On the night that Jesus betrayed, he lifted up the bread, and then he lifted up a cup of wine as symbols of what he was about to do on the cross. There is no other religion in which God comes and dies as a sacrifice of love to save those who have rebelled against him. That's a radical message. That is a unique message, and that's what this moment represents. This moment where Jesus provides a meal for a crowd, a meal they didn't earn, they didn't pay for. It is the message of God's grace, his unconditional, unearned love. But it requires something of us. It requires that we bring God our hunger. It requires that we trust him enough to say, God, I want to know you. God, I need your help. God, reveal yourself to me. And to put aside our prefab decisions about what we think about God, to come to him with a truly open heart, to say, Jesus, make yourself known to me. And this morning, if you would like to participate in Jesus, if you would like to just open your heart and make an intentional spiritual search, and experience the goodness of God in your life and receive him as the bread of life, then I want to invite you in a minute to stand and we're going to do communion together. Communion this morning is for those of us who've been following him and he is our bread of life. He is our salvation. He is our forgiveness. He is our everything. But maybe you're not there yet. You're not ready to give him your whole heart, but you want to know him and you want to take a step towards him and say, God, would you show yourself to me? I want to bring my hunger to you. I want to start to open myself up to you. And I want to know you and be honest with you and not hold you at a safe distance. If you'd like to do that, I want to invite you right where you're sitting. Let's just all stand together then, and we'll do this together. This is open to all who have or would like to know the satisfying grace of God's love through his son, Jesus. On that night, he broke the bread and said, this is my body broken for you. And in breaking his, the bread, it represented the breaking of his body for, to restore your broken relationship with God, each other, and with yourself. And he said, eat this in remembrance of me. Let's eat lifted up the cup with the best wine in town and he said this is my blood shed on the cross for the forgiveness of sin sin is the way in which we try to find satisfaction for our soul apart from God 
It is like a spouse trying to find fulfillment and satisfaction romantically apart from their spouse. And that's what we're doing with God when we try to satisfy our soul without him. And that's why the Bible calls it sin. It's not to condemn you. It's to diagnose your hunger so you know where to go to be filled. Let's drink this in remembrance of his forgiveness for all our sin. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your body and your blood. We thank you that you are the bread of life, and with you, there's always enough. And I pray, Lord, you would help us to bring our hunger to you today, this week, especially in the areas where we just don't understand. Now, this morning, I want to encourage you, if you're taking steps towards God to talk to somebody who brought you, have, it, have them do it over a coffee or a muffin that they are buying you in the cafe. Or come up and we'll pray for you. Come on, guys. We will pray for you. So if you are taking steps towards God, let us pray over you. We've got, come on, we've got Lindsay up here. we got Buzz. We've got a whole crew up here ready to pray for you guys. Come up. Let us pray for you. And let me end with this quote. You ready? Billy Graham said, God proved his love on the cross when Christ hung and bled and died. It was God saying, to the world, I love you. God loves you. And may you find your soul's satisfaction in his love. Have a great week, everybody. I'll see you next week.